privilege um, six years ago, along with my wife and my four kids, to start Soma Church in our living room. And uh, if you uh, grew up in church at all or grew up around church, you know that church has this tendency to drift towards just becoming um, an event that happens on Sunday. And one of our convictions as a church when we started was, uh, somebody's getting down in this building somewhere. <laughs> Grant, can we figure out where that's coming? Huh? Oh, it's outside. Oh, awesome. Okay, great. <laughs> I thought it was like, I was hoping it was the kids or something. But, um, yeah, the water, that would be bad. Somebody needs to get downstairs. Um, we started this church, uh, though, with the conviction that this wouldn't just be a Sunday event that we attend where we all come to consume a product, but rather that we would be a family of missionaries sent out to serve the city in the name of Jesus. And one of the primary arenas that happens, we, we gather as a church and we love what happens here on Sundays. And I know some of you are like freaks about, you, you love the quote-unquote Sunday experience, and we kind of shy away from words like that, but there is a powerful thing that happens when we gather together in Jesus' name, and we sing, and we celebrate, and we teach God's word, and we learn, and listen, and serve one another, um, but that's not the only arena um, in which we are to thrive and flourish as a people. The, the church gathered is a ha one half of the equation. The church scattered is the other half of the equation, and that's what happens Monday to Saturday. That's what we see in Acts chapter 2 and other places throughout the Bible where the church scatters out and, and, and really takes what happens here on Sunday morning and, and shares it with the community. And we see in the book of Acts is one of the primary ways that the people gained favor was meeting out in homes and breaking bread together and sharing life together in powerful ways publicly uh, as a witness to the world of what it looks like to taste to the community. Because there's the reality that most people in our city, they know where a church is if they want to go to church, right? Um, and so they would be here if they wanted to be. And so one of our callings is to go out and to spread the message of mercy of Jesus, to demonstrate it with our lives and to share it with our, our lips. And so that's really the conviction behind what we call missional community. And we're going to spend some time, every week we spend some time praying for different aspects of our church or our community um, and today we're going to be praying for missional communities. So if you're not familiar with that, maybe you grew up in a church that practices small groups or um, community groups or something, missional communities is that idea of us being a, a family on mission. And so these groups meet Monday to Saturday. And again, it's not an event that just happens on Tuesday. It's, it's a way of life together. And so it starts with Tuesday or it starts with Wednesday, but hopefully spills out into all of our lives uh, being lived together for the glory of Jesus. And so um, I want to encourage you, if you are not a part of a missional community, these groups are intended to be smaller, but just let me let you into the reality. If you show up to a missional community, it's probably going to disappoint you, right? Because it's a little bit chaotic, it's a little bit disorganized, it's very messy, and we are in the process of continuing to grow after having sent out multiple congregations around the city um, rebooting and resetting our missional communities here. We have 12 missional communities that meet. Now, do the math. Some of you are in math people. This is not hard math. We have about 500 people probably that attend here on a given month or more, and there's 12 missional communities. Okay, so that means the size dynamics are probably more like 20 or 30 or 40 people. And because most of them are here in Broderpool, and because most of you are in your 20s, that means they're in bungalows that are usually about 2,000 feet or smaller with very small spaces to meet. So um, we want to start new missional communities. If you're interested in helping be a part of uh, starting a new missional community, please let us know. There's a connect card around you. Fill that out. Um, you need to be praying for us, right? Because only about 60% of you attend a missional community. We want to see more people jump into uh, community life. So I'm going to ask real fast, and we're going to pray for our missional communities. Um, there is a map outside as you walk out today on your left of our city with all of our missional communities listed out, not just for Midtown, but also downtown and uh, some in Northwest as well. You can attend a missional community uh, up in Carmel, for instance, and maybe some of those folks go to somewhere Northwest, some of them go here. Some people attend missional communities downtown, but, it's, but actually go here to Midtown and vice versa. So um, we are really excited about those and want to continue to pray that God blesses those. And we hope that you'll see that as a vital piece of what it means um, to be a Christian, right? Um, and even if you're not a Christian, those are open and welcome spaces for you where you can ask good questions. They're places of friendship, they're places of mission, they're places of hospitality. They're places in the primary arena where we actually serve our neighbors is, is really more geographic than it is what happens here on Sunday. So if you're a missional community leader, would you just stand up real fast? I want to pray for you, recognize you. If any sort, in any, any of our missional communities, yep, go ahead and stand. Don't be shy. Uh, so we have uh, all over the Midtown area, but just looking here, like Central, 
uh, right here in Meridian Kessler, uh, right here just outside the church. This area, if you're new to Indy, is called Glendale, right here east of Keystone. We've got them right here. We've got Butler Tarkington just over off Butler's campus, which is my neighborhood. Some great folks. Meridian Kessler, uh, roughly like 56th and Indianola uh, area. Uh, Connor's here. Uh, Broad Ripple, just kind of around the speakeasy and the Monon core. Uh, Tyler. So all these folks are here. Look at them. Uh, just feel free to approach them. Uh, they love to, to talk about missional community. It's been such an impactful and transformative thing for many of us. And so um, I want to pray for you guys and pray that God continues to bless you as you pursue his kingdom uh, in your neighborhood. So let's pray for uh, these folks and for all of us as we seek to recapture a vision for community is bigger than Sunday morning. Father, we thank you. I thank you uh, for what you're doing here in the city. I thank you that you love Indianapolis and you have uh, a vision for the wholeness and the healing and the flourishing of our city. I thank you that we get to join you in participating in that work of redemption. And one of the primary ways that we get to express um, solidarity with uh, and service to and uh, the, the redemption of our community is through missional communities. I thank you, God, for this uh, this tool um, that we have to be able to uh, show hospitality to our friends and neighbors and coworkers and family members, some of whom know Jesus, some of whom don't. Um, God, I pray that you continue to expand and enlarge our vision for uh, friendship together in the name of Jesus, seeking to love and to serve um, those that you've placed around us. God, I pray for those in this room that are not a part of a missional community, that are maybe trying to do uh, their spirituality alone and yet finding that to be a frustrating exercise or maybe a dissatisfying one at best. God, I pray that you would stir in them uh, a willingness, uh, an openness, a curiosity. I know many of us have been hurt, many of us have been wounded in communities, especially religious communities. And so, God, I pray for just the openness to maybe take a risk, to reach out, um, to be open to what you might want to do in this season, um, not looking to the past and not being overly anxious about the future, but just being present to one another right now, willing to be vulnerable and authentic and take a risk to reach out in friendship with others. We gotta pray for these missional community leaders that you would empower them with your Holy Spirit. Give them all the strength and vitality they need to lead and to love and to serve. You gotta know it is a, it's a big sacrifice for folks that are working jobs 50, 60, 70 hours a week and then coming home and trying to open up their homes and to love their neighbors well. So God, I pray that you would just, uh, just pour out your grace on them, saturate them with your love and allow them to be conduits of that grace to those that are coming into their communities. And God, we pray for more leaders. God, would you raise up more leaders, more servants who want to open up their lives and homes. And God, so that we may expand and multiply more missional communities and see more people welcomed into your family uh, and activated for service here in Midtown and the north side of Indianapolis. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. All right. Hey, welcome to Soma. I am Josh, uh, one of the pastors here as well, and excited to, to look into God's Word with you guys today. We're going to continue a series uh, on the distortion of power, on power dynamics, really. Uh, we're in a series on power. Pastor Brandon preached last week on the good gift of power. This week, we're going to talk about the distortion of power. And for many of us, we, we've probably never even thought, we're having some conversations with some of you this week, we've never thought about power from the perspective of the Bible. Maybe we don't think it has anything to do with us, maybe we don't think the Bible really speaks to these things, but the Bible from beginning to end is a story of power. It's a story, Genesis 1, of how God creates by his power, how he moves a story of redemption by his power, how he is making all things new by his power, and how he calls us as image bearers of God, as human beings who have been created in the likeness of God to reflect him, to reflect this good gift of power. God has called us, God has given us to power to steward to, as a way to reflect him and to bring flourishing to our world. But the reality is, I don't know about you, but that's not the way we typically think about power. We think, we think about power, we hear the word power, and, and it has all of these negative connotations. We think it's a bad thing. And in many ways, that's very natural because we have seen so many abuses of power. 
We look at the world around us. We, we look at the history of the world, and in many ways, the history of the world is the history of the strong abusing their power to oppress the weak. And, and, and I, I don't think I probably need to sell you too hard on that point. I think we all kind of get that. We all know that there is something wrong with the way human beings use power. But here's the thing we often don't recognize. We don't often recognize the ways that we misuse power. My son Owen is, is going to be six years old uh, in, in a couple of weeks. So when he, when he was, uh, sorry, six, six years old, sorry, six years old in a couple of weeks, um, when he was three weeks old, I had to, to leave New York City. We were living in New York City at the time. I had to fly to Atlanta for some meetings. Now remember, Owen is three weeks old at this point, which means I haven't slept in three weeks. So I'm not 100% of what's uh, going on at this point. I'm not 100% conscious, but I remember kind of uh, through, through the fog of sleep, making my way to LaGuardia Airport, sitting at the gate, waiting for my flight. And I'm sitting there, and I start to smell something. And I kind of look around. I look at the guy kind of sitting over there. I, I make a loop around the area in front of the gate. I make a loop in front of the bathroom. I'm like, where is that smell coming from? Now, what you need to know, this is LaGuardia Airport, so that smell could have been anything. That, that, that smell could have been the body of Jimmy Hoffa, for all that I know. So, so I, I do this loop around, and, and I'm looking for what it is. And then I realize, it's not the guy sitting next to me. It's not coming from the food court. It's not coming from the bathroom. It's coming from me. And I look back. I look over my, my right shoulder. I was wearing a black shirt, which if you know me doesn't surprise you probably. I was wearing a black shirt, and I, I look over my shoulder, and I am covered. My back is covered in baby puke. I have taken a cab from Manhattan to Queens. I have gone through security. I am sitting at the gate waiting for my flight with spit up from my son all over my back. Like how I made it past the TSA is a mystery to me. I have, still don't know to this day. But I think, I think that's kind of how some of us approach this issue of power. We know something stinks in the world. We know things are not the way that they're supposed to be. But we assume it must be somebody else's fault. We never imagine the ways that we might play into that. We never imagine the way that I might be the one who stinks. Everyone loves to critique the use of power. No one wants to admit the way that they've misused power. We always think that the problem is out there. It's always someone else's fault. What we see, though, when we, when we come to the Bible, what we see when we look at human history, what we see when we honestly take a good, honest, transparent look at our own hearts is that the problem is not just out there. The problem's in here. The, the problem isn't just a problem of unjust systems. It's a problem of the human heart. Now listen, we're going to talk about systems in a couple of weeks, come back in a couple of weeks uh, when we talk about institutions and power, and we're going to talk about how unjust systems contribute to oppression and brokenness and violence in the world. But, but if we don't start here, if we don't start where we're going to start in Genesis 3 today, if we don't start with the power dynamics of the human heart, then we will never get anywhere. We'll never actually address the root of the problem. I'm a history nerd. I, I minored uh, in history in college. So I love reading history. I love watching historical documentaries. Uh, if there is any such thing as a Ken Burns fanboy, uh, that's me. And so, I, 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 but I'm specifically fascinated with the history of revolutions. French Revolution, the, the Bolshevik Revolution, the revolutions that spread across Africa and Latin America in the 1960s. And if you look at the history of revolutions, they have a very definite pattern by and large. You have this ruling class, you have this, this aristocracy that has the power. And then what happens is the people rise up and they overthrow the aristocracy and a new system is put in place, a new ruling class rises to the top, but that ruling class is almost always more oppressive than the original aristocracy. Happened in France in the 1700s, happened in Russia in the 1900s, happened in Cuba in the 1960s. The oppressed rise up and overthrow the, the oppressors, and they create a completely new system. But they never get rid of the oppression. The oppressed simply rise up to become the oppressors. Now, let me ask you, why is that? 
It's because we're simply treating oppression, we're simply treating injustice as if it's only something out there, as if it's only an issue of the system. It's, it's something that can be solved by better economics or better politics. And yet oppression and injustice keeps taking new forms because it's not just a problem out there, it's a problem in here. It's a problem in your heart. It's a problem in my heart. So we're going to talk about out there in a few weeks, but we're going to start with the root of the problem. We're going to start in Genesis 3 today with in here. Isaiah chapter 6, um, God calls the prophet Isaiah, and he tells Isaiah, I want you to speak truth to power. I want you to speak against the injustice and the oppression that is happening in Israel. Speak truth to the power structures. But before God ever sends Isaiah out, Isaiah chapter 6, he calls him to himself. He shows him a vision of his own holiness. He shows Isaiah a vision of his own sin. And Isaiah is confronted with that reality. And he cries out, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And then God sends an angel. He sends a seraphim with a hot coal. And that angel goes and he touches Isaiah's lips with that hot coal. And he cleanses him from his sin. And then he sends him out to speak, inju- to speak against the injustice in the world. And, and, and I think that's something that we need to learn. Especially in an age of hashtag activism. We are so quick to point the finger at other people that we never actually take time to look in the mirror. And we need to learn to say, woe is me, before we say, woe is you. We need to confront the reality of our own sin. We need to confront the way that we have corrupted and distorted the power that God has given us as image bearers before we can honestly and with any sense of integrity speak against the corruption that we see in the world around us. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to the beginning today. We're going to see where all of this mess started. We're going to see how this corruption of power has affected us and how it's affected the world around us. And we're going to see how God is making it right again. So Genesis chapter 3 is is where we're going to be. So if you have a Bible, if you have it uh, on your phone, open it up, take a look there. We're going to be camping out there today. We're going to see three important truths about power from Genesis chapter 3, or what we're calling in this series, playing God. We're going to see why we try to play God. We're going to see what happens when we try to play God. And then we're going to see what happens when we let God be God. Why we try to play God. What happens when we try to play God. And what happens when we trust God to be God. First, why we try to play God. Let me me say this up front. There is actually a right way to play God. There is a right way to use power in a way that reflects what it means to be created in the image of God. There is a right way to use our influence and our education and our money and our abilities and our networks for the good of other people and for the glory of God and for the flourishing of God's world. But there is also a wrong way to play God where we are no longer content to use power as God intends, where we take these good gifts that God has given us and we use them to exploit others and to rebel against God. Because at the root, we're no longer content to be created in the image of God. Now we want to be God. That's what we see in this passage today. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This story is all about power. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. It's not first and foremost about fruit. It's not first and foremost about a talking snake. It is first and foremost about power. It is first and foremost about how we as human beings have been tempted to take the power that we've been given as images of God and to use that power to make ourselves our own gods. 
Verse 1, look at it again. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? All right, so you've got a talking snake here, which is really weird for a lot of us. I've never met a talking snake in real life. But, but here's what you need to know about what's going on here. The serpent was a symbol of power in the ancient Near East. When the original readers of Genesis heard this, this is what they would have heard. They would have thought about power. I'll give you an example of why I say this. Um, the book of Genesis was originally written by a man named Moses. Moses writes the book of Genesis to tell the people of Israel who they are and where they come from. And he writes the book of Genesis most likely while the people of Israel are living as slaves in Egypt. And the serpent, the snake, the cobra, was the ultimate symbol of power in ancient Egypt. If you've studied ancient Egypt, you've probably seen what's called the uraeus. The uraeus is the, is the, the cobra that's on the, on the pharaoh's crown. It's a symbol of power. We've got a picture of it right here. This is the mask of, of Tutankhamun. And, and, and when the people of Israel, when the people of Egypt, when anyone living in Egypt at the time, saw that cobra on the crown of the pharaoh, they knew he is the ultimate power. He is the ultimate authority. In ancient Egypt, the Pharaoh was literally, not just figuratively, he was literally treated as a god on the earth. So when the people of Israel, here they are, they're living as slaves in Egypt, and they are oppressed by this power every day. And when Moses mentions this serpent, this is what comes to the minds of the readers. They're thinking about power. The oppressive power that is breaking their backs. The oppressive power that is literally beating them into the grave. The oppressive power that is killing their children. The power that treats a mere human being as a god and treats them as property. And Moses says that's the same power that initially tempted our first parents. That Pharaoh who is drowning your children in the Nile River is acting like he's a god. But you and I and every other human being since our first parents has been tempted to use power that same way as well. We want to be God. And so the serpent comes along and he tempts them to take the power that God has given them as image bearers of God and to kick God off the throne of the universe. As one scholar says, to de-God God. To live like they are their own gods. And look how he does it. Look at verse 1. Did God actually say, did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Do you see what he's doing here? He's mocking God. He's laughing at God. And he's trying to get Adam and Eve to laugh at God as well. Did God really say that? It, can this guy possibly be serious? See, for some of us, that's why we've stopped believing what God says. Because we have given in to the influences of an environment where God's word is laughed at. It's not really that anyone's ever given us a good argument against what God says. It's just that it seems so uncool. It seems so easy to mock. It makes such a good punchline on a late night show or on a social media post. And do you see what's happening? You are literally falling for the oldest power play in the book. The serpent was smart, verse 1. He was more crafty than any other beast of the field. The serpent was powerful. He was so powerful that he would become a symbol of power all throughout the ancient Near East. The serpent was attractive. He was pretty. Most of us don't think about snakes like that today. But, but the word here for serpent is, is the Hebrew word nahash. It literally means the shining one. He was captivating to look, to look at. The serpent is the picture of what we think we want. Attractiveness. Intelligence power. I think that's why the devil takes the form of the serpent here, because it's a power play. The serpent was the first celebrity endorsement. And the serpent comes along, and he says, did God really say that? I mean, come on. No intelligent person could believe that. No successful person could believe that. My professors could never believe that. My coworkers could never believe that. The pretty, shiny, funny people on social media or on TV or on magazine covers, they could never believe that. See, the serpent tries to shame us for believing what God says. 
I'm terrified that so many of us are falling for it. Falling for the oldest power play in the book. Serpent starts out mocking God, but, but then he moves on. He doesn't just mock God, he begins to question God. And he specifically questions the goodness of God. Look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See what he's whispering here? He's saying, God's holding out on you. God's trying to keep you down. God knows if you just take control, if you just exercise your will to power, if you just do things your way rather than doing things God's way, you will be like God. That's the lie of the serpent. That's the fundamental lie that we all naturally believe. God doesn't love you. God doesn't want what's best for you. And if you want to experience joy and happiness and the good life, then you need to do it your way. You need to live life on your terms. Look what Satan does here. He doesn't deny the existence of God. He doesn't deny the law of God or the kingship of God. He denies the goodness of God. That's the whole point of this temptation. He is getting them to doubt the goodness of God. God never intended to withhold anything good from his children. He said to them, here's all the world. Here's my entire creation. Here's every tree of the garden. Eat it. Enjoy it. Cultivate it. Experience my goodness. Just don't eat from this one tree. It's not because there was anything magical about the tree. It's because it was a way of trusting God. He, puts, he says, just don't eat of this one tree. Trust me. Trust me that I love you. Trust me that I am not going to withhold anything good from you. But Satan says, if you trust God, if you do things God's way, you won't be happy. And that is still the lie that he whispers to every single one of us. That is still the lie he is whispering in some of our ears even now. If you trust God with your money, you won't be happy. If you trust God with your sexuality, you won't be happy. If you trust God with your marriage, if you trust God with your family, you won't be happy. He says, don't trust God. Trust yourself. Don't trust God to give you what's best. Take it. Take it for yourself. Exercise your power to take what you want. And when you do, he says, you will be like God. You will be the supreme authority in your life. No more living under the rule of God. You will be your own God. And of course, here's the irony. They were already like God. They were created in the image of God. They were created to reflect God and represent God and relate to God. But we didn't just want to be like God. We didn't just want to reflect God. We wanted to be God. So sin is at its core. Sin is our attempt to replace God. Sin is our attempt to kick God off the throne of the universe, off the throne of my life, and to take his place. And and it can take all kinds of forms. For some of us, it it looks like what we typically think of. It it looks like hedonism. It looks like this desire. I'm going to live for my own pleasure. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to live life on my own terms because I'm my own God. For some of us, it looks different. For some of us, it looks like materialism. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to make lots of money so that I can purchase my own security so that I don't have to trust God because I'm my own God. For some of us, it looks like an obsession with with exercise or with diet. I'm going to make myself healthy so that I can prevent disease and aging and death. I will not surely die. I am my own God. For some of us, it looks like religion. It looks like morality. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to be an ethical, moral, upstanding person. I'm going to save myself. I'm going to redeem myself. I don't need forgiveness. I don't need grace. I'm a good person. I'm my own God. Now, clearly, there is nothing wrong with any of those things, right? 
Nothing wrong with pleasure. Nothing wrong with money, with wealth and working hard. Nothing wrong with physical health. Nothing wrong with morality. All good things, good gifts. But sometimes we take those good gifts and we make them ultimate. And we use them to kick God off the throne. We take the power. We take our capacity for pleasure our capacity for work, our capacity for physical health, our capacity for relationships, our capacity for morality. Those are all forms of power. And we take that power and we use it to crowd God out of our lives. We take it to live like we don't need God. Sin is a power struggle with God. And a power struggle with God never ends well. All these things end up failing us in the end. Why do we want to? play God because we want to be the supreme authority in our lives. We want to be our gods, our own gods. And then what happens when we do that? What happens when we try to be God? Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now I have never tried to sew fig leaves. Uh, I've never tried to sew much of anything for that matter since seventh grade home ec and that was a disaster. So, uh, but I can imagine this would have been extremely frustrating. Probably didn't work really. You probably don't want to go out in public wearing fig leaves. And yet we do this all the time. Not literally, figuratively. We do this all the time where we feel this sense of shame. We feel dirty. We feel exposed. And so we try to cover it up. If I can just change my habits, if I can give enough money to charity, if I can perfectly curate my social media profile, if I can lose 10 pounds, if I can be a good enough person, then I'll be able to escape this sense of shame. Then I'll be able to make myself clean. But it is never enough. We scrub and we scrub and we scrub and we can't get the stain out of our soul. So what do we do? Verse 8, we run and hide. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I feel this sense of shame. I feel like I'm deeply broken. I am not the way that I should be, and so I hide. I hide from God. I hide from the one who created me to know him and love him. And I hide from other people. I hide from the, from the community, from the relationships God created me for. See, when our relationship with God breaks down, all other ra- relationships break down as well. Genesis 2.25 says, Adam and Eve were both naked and they were unashamed, completely vulnerable with each other. No secrets, no fear, no lies, no distrust. And now they cover themselves up. They hide from God and they hide from each other. For some of us, we, we hide because we're trying to protect ourselves. We've been hurt. We've been wronged. We're, we're just afraid, I can't trust people. For some of us, it actually goes further. For some of us, we actually hide. We actually withdraw from relationships as a way of hurting other people. I see this all the time in, in marriages. I see husbands. I see wives. They, they feel some sense of shame. They feel some sense of fear. They feel some sense that they've been wronged. And they withdraw as a way of hurting their spouse. Listen, if you are married to someone, you have tremendous relational power over them. And you can be part of making their life wonderful, or you can be part of making their life a living hell. This is what so many of us do. We take the power that God has given us in our, not just marriage, in any relationship, and we use it to hurt the people that we're supposed to love. Verse 16, look what he says. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. God intends for a husband and a wife to love and to serve and to give themselves to one another. He's given us relational power with one another to use to make each other happy. But now what happens? What happens now? We use our power to hurt each other. This word, verse 16, this word for desire is a fascinating word. It's the word for an animal stalking its prey. God says, Eve, you have got tremendous relational power over Adam. And I have given you that power so that you can bring happiness to him. 
But since you've tried to play God in your own life, since you've used your power to be your own God, you are going to be constantly tempted to use that power to destroy and devour your husband. And he says to Adam, Adam, you have tremendous power over your wife. You have tremendous power, relational power over Eve. And I have given you to her to love her and to serve her and to seek her flourishing. But you've tried to put yourself in the place of God in your own life. And now you're always going to be tempted to use your power to oppress Eve, to rule harshly over her. And do you see what happens when we don't submit to God's authority in our own lives? When we try to live like we are our own gods, we become the kind of people who use our power to hurt other people. That's how power gets distorted in our relationships. All of our problems arise from the fact that we try to put ourselves in the place of God. We take God's place in our own lives, and we try to take God's place in the life of others. And you can just read the rest, the, the next eight chapters of the book of Genesis. This creates oppression, it creates murder, it creates violence, it creates injustice. Instead of using our power for the good of others, we use it to hurt them. We take whatever we can to make ourselves feel strong and to make other people feel weak. We'll use money. We'll use intelligence. We'll use sex appeal. We'll use physical strength. We'll use our careers. We'll use our religion. We'll use whatever we can to make ourselves feel strong at the expense of other people. So let me just ask you, let me ask myself, what is it for you? What is it for me? What is that thing that I hold on to to make myself feel like I'm powerful, to make myself feel like I matter, to make myself feel like I am something, often at the expense of other people? One of the most powerful weapons we use against each other is the power of condemnation, the power of blame. Verse 11, he, this God, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The Lord said to the woman, what's this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. See what's happening? I feel this guilt within me. I know I've done something wrong, so what do I do? I find someone else to blame. I put someone else down to make myself look better. It's not my fault, God. It's the woman you gave me. It's the man you gave me. It's the boss you gave me. It's the coworkers you gave me. It's the parents you gave me. It's the kids you gave me. It's the friends you gave me. It's the roommates you gave me. God, this is, this is really all your fault. You gave me this woman. You created this serpent. We, this is the pattern. This is the textbook pattern of abusive behavior. We shift the blame for our own sin. We do this in our personal lives, and, and, and we do this in society as a whole. Where do you think racism comes from? Where do you think classism comes from? Where do you think sexism comes from? Where do you think xenophobia comes from? Where do you think this toxic political environment we find ourselves in today comes from? It all comes from our desire to blame some other group of people for all of our problems. Blame women. Blame men. Blame the poor. Blame the rich. Blame the Republicans. Blame the Democrats. Blame the immigrants. Blame anyone with a different skin tone. We, we blame the other guy. That's what we do as fallen human beings. We take this weapon of guilt and condemnation and we turn it against other people. And we think all these things are going to make us happy. We think living on our own terms is going to make us happy. We think it's going to make us powerful, but it destroys our relationships. It destroys our relationship with God destroys our relationships with other people, destroys our relationship with the world around us. We thought it would make us powerful, but it actually made us powerless. Look at verse 17. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, for you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. We, we try to play God. We try to use power our own way, and we end up in frustration and futility 
and emptiness. Our attempts at freedom lead us to slavery. We thought that doing it our own way would make us more than human, and in the process, we've become less than human. That's what happens when we try to play God. But thankfully, thankfully, that is not the end of the story. Here's the good news. The good news is that despite all of our attempts to replace God on the throne of the universe, God is still God. And he calls us into the freedom of letting him be God. So what happens when we trust God to be God? Our attempts to do it our way lead us to slavery. We lost the very, we can't set ourselves free. We need someone else to come and to set us free. We need God to make all things new. But look what God promises. Look at verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We tried to assert our power. We tried to do it our way. We tried to use our power to turn ourselves into gods and we turned ourselves into slaves. And the entire history of the world is us trying to get that back. Trying to get back to what we lost. Social movements, political movements, economic movements, religious movements. We are trying to undo the curse. We are trying to make all things new because we know something is deeply broken in the world and deeply broken in us. And we try all these things and it doesn't work. But one night a little over 2,000 years ago, a teenage mother gave birth to a young baby boy in a stable in Palestine. And as unlikely as it seems, this little baby boy, this, verse 15, offspring of the woman, has come to turn the world right side up. He has come to set us free. And when this baby grows up, he finds himself in another garden. It's not called the Garden of Eden, it's called the Garden of Gethsemane. And instead of saying, I'm going to do it my way, he says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Instead of asserting his own rights, he lays down his rights. Instead of a human being trying to become God, you see God becoming a human being. You see God laying down his rights. You see God laying down his privilege. You see God laying down his power. You see God becoming powerless to the point of death so that you and I can experience the power of his resurrection. Genesis 3, what happens? Adam and Eve climbed the tree to put themselves in the place of God. Jesus climbed the tree. Jesus went up on the cross, and he put himself in our place. John Stott, a pastor in London, said it this way, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection. We tried to make ourselves gods, but God became a man so that he could take our place and so that he could set us free. He came to, came to set us free from our guilt. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation, no guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. I have been set free with all the stupid things I've done, with all the terrible sin I have committed. I have been set free from the power of guilt in my own life. And what that means is that I no longer need to weaponize guilt and blame and condemnation to hurt other people. I don't need to justify myself by blaming other people. I don't need to harbor a grudge against someone else because all of my sin has been forgiven. The power of guilt has been broken. Jesus came to set us free from guilt. He came to set us free from our shame. Look back at Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, this beautiful, beautiful picture. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. What did Adam and Eve do? They're, they're trying to sew these fig leaves together to cover up their sin, but they could never undo their shame. But God sheds blood. God kills a sacrifice, and he clothes them in it, and he covers their shame. That's what God does for us in Jesus. God sheds God's own blood. 
God himself becomes the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus clothed himself in our sin so that he could clothe us in his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, for our sake, literally in our place, so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. In Jesus, I have been set free from my shame. So I don't need to hide. I don't need to pretend. I don't need to get all my stuff together and and put a particular posture out there and, and, and pretend that I am better than I am. And I don't need to use that as a way to keep other people down. I don't need to use shame as a weapon in their life. Jesus has broken the power of shame. And he's come to set us free from fear. Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. God has sent his very spirit to live within us to remind me I don't need to fear judgment. I don't need to run away from God because of what Jesus has done. I no longer need to run and hide. I can run like a son running to the arms of his loving father and trust that he will embrace me and trust that he will love me. And I I can trust then him in any area of life. I can trust that he will take care of me. He loved me. They laid down his life for me. And so I can boldly and confidently and fearlessly lay down my life, lay down my rights, lay down my privilege, lay down my power for the good of others. I can use power the way Jesus used it. See, Jesus shows us a better way to be human. Jesus shows us a way to use power that truly reflects God. Philippians chapter 2 Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now think about this. Adam and Eve, what are they doing in Genesis 3? They are grasping. They are grasping for equality with God. But Jesus, Jesus was already God. But look what he did. Verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the way of the serpent teaches me that I find glory by using my power to make other people serve me. The way of Jesus says that glory comes through using my power to serve other people. The way of the serpent teaches me that power comes by asserting my own rights. The way of Jesus teaches me that true power comes by laying down my rights. The way of the serpent teaches me that I get power by grabbing for what I want. The way of Jesus teaches me to simply open up my powerless hands and to receive the good gift of a God who loved me so much that he was willing to die for me. See, when you see that, when you see the way that the God of the universe, that Jesus has used his power to serve you, you are set free. You are set free from guilt. You are set free from shame. You are set free from condemnation. You are set free to use your power to love and to serve others. There really is no better picture of this than the Lord's Supper, which we're about to take here. It's the picture that Jesus gave us of this reality. This, this, this is just ordinary bread. It's just, it's just ordinary juice. But this is a reminder that Jesus gave us. It's a reminder that he came to serve us. The God of the universe became a man. The king became the servant. He poured out his life for us. He clothed himself in our sin so that he could clothe us in his righteousness. He didn't hold on to his own rights. He didn't hold on to his own power. He even gave up the power of life. He gave up the power over his own life. He gave up the power over his own body and blood. And he says, here it is. Take and eat. Here's my body. It's broken for you. Here's my blood. It's poured out for you. I lay down the power of life to give it to you. So if you're trusting in that, if 
you're trusting God to be God, if you're trusting Jesus to do for you what you can't do for yourself, if you're trusting him to break the power of guilt and shame and condemnation in your life, if you're trusting in his death and resurrection to make you right with God, then come and eat and drink and be reminded of that beautiful reality today as we celebrate. We've got stations at the front. We'll have stations in the gallery in the back. We just come down the aisle, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and take it, and return to our seats. And maybe you're here today, and, and you've not experienced that. Maybe you're here today, and you've got questions about that. Maybe you're here today, and you say, no, I'm, I'm not trusting in Jesus. I'm not trusting in his death and resurrection to make me right with God. So we'd encourage you just to, to, to stay in your seat while others come to take the bread and the cup. Not because we think we are in any way, shape, or form superior. We certainly are not, as we've seen in this, in this text today. But it's because this meal is a reminder. It's, it's, it needs to be united to faith. It needs to be united to trusting in Jesus. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. But for those of us who are trusting in Jesus, it's a reminder. Jesus has given his body for us. He's given his blood for us. And so maybe you got questions about that. Maybe, you maybe you're like, hey, I don't know. This sounds really weird, um, but I'd love to consider it. And so if that's you, I'd love to speak with you. I'd, lo I'd love to speak with you right now. Uh, I'd love to speak with you after the service, um, what whatever, whatever you feel God might be, be leading you to do. So let's pray, and let's take the Lord's Supper. Father, we, we confess, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with the way that that we look at our relationships and the way that we use all of the good gifts that you have given us, if we take a moment to be honest with ourselves, we, we realize that the corruption of power, it's not just a problem out there. It's not just a problem for other people. It's not just a problem of, of, of the world system as an idea, but it's, it's a problem of our own hearts. And if we're honest about that, we've got to confess the fact that we so often use the power that you have given us to try to make ourselves our own gods, to try to be the king of our own lives. God, thank you that, that, you, didn't let that you didn't let that go unchecked. Thank you that despite all of our attempts to play God, you are still God. Thank you that your son laid down his life, laid down his very body and blood and gave it to us so that through his death we could find life. God, would you make us the kind of people who follow that pattern? Make us the kind of people who don't follow the way of the serpent. Make us the kind of people who follow the way of Jesus, who follow the way of Jesus in pouring out our lives for the good of others and for your glory. I pray in Christ's name, amen.